Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, a podcast where two lifelong friends and film addicts sit and talk about films that they've seen separately for the first time. So this week, we're going to talk about another Mike pick. Uh, this is 1982's The Verdict, directed by Sidney Lumet and uh, written by David Mamet, one of David Mamet's first movies, along with The Postman Always Drinks Twice. This is a movie we both um, highly esteem. Uh, it's one that Mike uh, thought we should do on the podcast because Mike said that for a while he watched this on a loop over and over and over, but we've never talked about it before. We like to talk in the beginning about our overall impressions. I just finished watching it again um, about five minutes ago, and Mike watched it, I know, a night or two ago. So, Mike, you have the floor. Go. I think that it is one of the most compelling films, meaning I, I don't know a single person, people who like movies, people who don't, people who watch movies seriously, people who don't, uh, that is not drawn into the narrative. Um, I think that there's kind of a cliche, people say, well, I want a person in a movie that I can root for. And it seems to me like the formula of this film is to give you someone you absolutely cannot root for uh, and absolutely make you you just have to root for them and be 100% on their side. And I think that that's the gimmick that makes the the, the movie great. You're right, um, you know, personal anecdotes aside, I had a period of my life where I watched this movie, I, I wanna say like once a day for three weeks uh, when it's on Netflix, but it was it was so rewatchable um, that I would just, I would just kind of have it on. Um, I don't think that there's a spare shot uh, in the whole movie, but th th this whole film is like watching a jet take off. You know, you can, you can see it, you know exactly what's going to happen. Then it's, it's up in the air as if by magic and nothing is bringing it down. Then it lands perfectly. I, I love this film. That's a great, that's a great thing about watching a jet and because you'd endlessly rewatch it. Every time you'd watch a jet take off, you'd wow, right? Fascinating. You know, it's funny you said about, it takes an unlikable person that makes them, makes them likable and you root for them and stuff. Of course it helps that it's Paul Newman. Sure. I mean, the, the sing, probably the single most charismatic person, you know, him and Cary Grant to ever get in front of a movie camera. But I totally get what you mean. Like, totally. You know, it's funny. I read uh, I was reading the trivia on IMDb, like I always do after I watch a movie. And some of these, you, you know, you don't know if they're true or not. But one of the things in the trivia file said that Robert Redford was offered the part, but that he didn't like the fact that Frank was an alcoholic. And he, wow. wanted the, he wanted a rewrite of the script and, and things like that. So, but I think that Paul Newman carries it off beautifully. Um, I love what you said because, yeah, you don't have to be like a quote unquote movie nerd or a movie geek to like this. Like you don't have to appreciate all the decisions that the director makes and all the things in the screenplay, which we'll talk about in the second segment, like when we talk about our favorite moments, but it is, this is a pure draw in absolute narrative. Oh my God, what's gonna happen movie. 
And it's funny because I think, you know, I'm always fascinated by the decisions people make when they, when they create great art. Um, the, the court case really doesn't take over. We've talked about how um, in Sea of Love and in Heat and stuff, like does the, does the character stuff prove to be as interesting as the crime stuff, right? So in this movie, it's like, is the Frankie story as interesting as the actual case about the anesthesiology? And it is. It totally mm -hmm. is. That's why you care about the verdict so much. That's why, that's why it's a perfect confluence at the end. But to your point, I think it's perfectly balanced with actual people. So yeah, think, so here's my secret question. Think of- You have a secret question? I do. Think of a movie, um, you know, a courtroom drama where the judge is as much of a character as, as he is in, and I mean, and I don't mean, mean just a character as the judge, I mean a person as yeah. he is in this film. Yeah, you, you can't, you can't. I thought the same yeah. thing, you know, I'll appreciate it if you try my case, you'll, you'll, you won't lose it for me. But certainly, right. uh, you know, um, Milo O'Shea and his eyebrows, there's no but, judge right. with eyebrows that guy. <laughs> well, but, he, uh, goes, he goes to his house in the middle of the night. Yeah. And he says, I, I have no sympathy for you. Yeah, and, then, but it, and that's why you're so happy when Paul Newman leans over his desk and goes, I know all about you. I know all about you. And, and you're so drawn in on Paul Newman's side. It's like he becomes your lawyer. He becomes the viewer's lawyer as you watch this. He has one client and it's a viewer. And, but the, the, um, my favorite part is, is the check, is when uh, he looks at the offer for the first time from yeah. the archdiocese. Yeah. And he says it's interesting uh, how neatly if, uh, yeah, it that's ways. a great moment. It's $70,000. It's perfect. You know, going back to what you said about the characters being so well, you know, go, you know, you and I are both big fans of David Mamet. And, and something that struck me watching it this time was that how much it's very much like a play. It's very much like a play. And what made me, the, the first moment that I realized that was when um, he takes Charlotte Rampling back to his apartment and you never see the ceiling because it's obviously a set, right? So they don't want, you don't want to see the boom mics. Right. And then, it, you know, but it occurred to me how this whole film really could work on stage. I mean, every scene is three or four people. There's a core amount of characters, a small cast, three or four people in a room talking about things, but what they're talking about and care about, you care about too. It's, it's just it. like a drama. You're right. And the, uh, what drew my attention to that is uh, the way that the soundtrack is used. So there's, it's uh, almost entirely silent. Almost silent, yes. Except for three moments. Um, one of them is when he's running to, to go to Dr. Gruber's apartment and he thinks yep. he's in the wrong place. And if you think about it, the director is looking at this image and thinking, we have to shoot from far away. You have to see him running around like a mouse. But there's there's nothing else to dramatize this tiny little figure. So how do you how do you stay in this little figure's heart while he's running around? Well, of course you dramatize that through the score. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, and, you know, so th again, I think that there's moments like that that would work better on stage to have somebody you know running back and forth on stage. So you're entirely right. But I think that the directorial decisions uh, by Sidney Lumet are great. Yeah, and you could and between him and David Mamet, what a combination! I, I kept thinking, well, I wish they had made more movies together. I mean, even like every scene. This is a textbook thing. I don't know if you have read Mamet's like uh, he has a book called On Directing Film, which is terrific about like how you enter it. You should enter every scene late, leave it early, and he also talks about how every scene has to have a job, like every scene has to have a job, and every scene in this film does, like the pinball games, right? Beautiful. Like everything is beautiful. Like every single scene has somebody wants something, and are they going to get it in this moment? Well, and it's it's so text it's literally textbook as as you mentioned because the scene i'm thinking about is the 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 other one of the three uh scenes that has the score has has that sound effect that i'm sure is in your brain i can't recreate it uh, -huh. uh is is when he's in the bathroom yeah and she's saying right what's the text the textbook the textbook is one character has to say do this and the other character says i can't do this and right. she says frank come on out 
Frank coming and he's, he just, you're not, like I've seen a hundred times, I still don't know what he's gonna say every time, even though I know the line and he says, don't pressure me. <laughs> I know. And then, just completely cracked. Even more brilliant is that, he, is that when he looks at her, he goes, excuse me, and runs into the bathroom. And you're like, where are you going? Like, the, you're like where, where is he going? Like, he's going to the, he has to go to the bathroom? You're like, first of all, he wouldn't go to the bathroom. Any other director, any other director is having her run into the bathroom. And that's the moment at which he says, okay, okay, yeah. come on out. I can do it. But no, not Sidney right. Lumet and not David Mamet. He's running into the bathroom. He's got a crack. And she right. says, come on out. And he says, don't pressure me. Yeah. That's the moment where she comes in and he grabs her like by the shoulders and shakes right. her a little bit. And like, and like ha they have a big conversation. Like, it's like, you know, you said a another thing you reminded me of how great is the, is the staging when um, she says, you're like a little boy and you want me to tell you everything's going to be fine. But she's, she's 40 feet away from him at the other end of the room. Like, it's perfect. It's like, you know, like those decisions are, are I think so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And th I mean, there's just nothing wasted in the, no. in this movie. You know, I can still, I guess I watched it a few days ago. I can still recall, you know, the joke, right? Because yeah. you've seen him being a, no, you've seen him be sister. a bump. No, but my sister has. Yeah. You've seen him being a, a bumbling alcoholic. But what about, I thought alcoholics were supposed to be charming. Uh, yeah. He has that too. <laughs> absolutely. All right. It's in part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. That sounds good. Okay, welcome back. So in the second segment, we love to talk about our favorite scenes or the scenes that we think are most indicative of the themes of the, of the film, get us into the film. So Dan, I know you had one that you wanted to start off with here. Sure, I have many, but it has to do with kind of what we said before about the staging was that the, the, there's the great moment in the plot where Jack Warden realizes what's really going on with Charlotte Rampling and he finds the check in her pocketbook and things like that. So uh, he flies to New York and he looks for Paul Newman because he wants to tell him as soon as he can, he can't wait about what, who she's, that she's getting paid by James Mason. And they get together and you're waiting for this scene. You can't believe it. You want to say, how is Paul Newman going to react? And instead you get to see them do it in pantomime from a hundred feet in the air in front of the hotel. And just by their body language, you get that scene. And in a past podcast, when we did Lawrence of Arabia, you quoted Steven Spielberg by saying that if you're an artist, you watch things and say, how do they do that? How do they do that? So I don't make any claims to be an artist. But I certainly, um, I, I'm artistically minded, I hope, because when I saw that scene today, I thought to myself, how did Mamet and Sidney Lumet know to not write that scene? Any, 99% of anybody, including me, including you, would have actually had the conversation and it would have been quote unquote great drama, right? It would have been Jack, Paul Newman could have gotten to quote unquote act and he could have like, he, first he would say, no, no, that's impossible. He'd say, no, Frankie, I saw the check. You can believe what you want to be. But just to have, like, we're not going to show that. And I think I, I am fascinated by what goes into that moment. I, I agree with you. And I, I love that moment because especially given that they're in New York City, there was something about the anonymity uh, of the city that yeah. I think takes over the scene where you, you can see things acted out like that a hundred times. And you yeah. know that there's little personal dramas exploding all over the place. But all you get from strangers are their gestures, their facial features with one another, the way they you know split up yeah. and, and, and walk in different directions. And I think that that was very indicative for me of the way that the film operates um, and kind of leads into my moment, which is when... Uh, the uh, the victim's uh, sister's husband uh, punches Paul Newman in the face, yeah. and and essentially what he's revealing is that you know there's actual people whose lives depend on this, and there's there's a a circuit 
of things that go around and around and around and around. But what they're really adjudicating are the lives of regular people, just like you know, her sisters were in the doctor's hands. Now we're now we're in your hands, you know. Yeah. And he says, I'm gonna have your ass. Yeah. You know, for for what you did, I'm gonna bring you up to the bar. And he says, You can do whatever you want with me, but you know, let me let me try it that yeah. way. And and to cheat and have a second moment, I mean there's there's a line that just haunts me every time I hear it. Um, and I know I this is one moment where an actress got to quote unquote act, but it's it's indicative of the same theme of the lives of little people uh, being run by by other people. And she the nurse on the stand, the surprise witness says, "Who are these men? I wanted to be a nurse." Yeah. Yeah, and just sure. be, to avoid that scene right then in the courtroom, she's she's shuffled out, and they essentially choose another profession for her. They run her out of town. Yeah, uh, yeah. Be, because they don't want her to testify. Uh, and that is, that is the great injustice, right? And that's what that's what Newman, as Frankie says uh, in the last scene, when he says that, that you guys have to do your best. It's a kind of prayer, right? Uh, you know that the twelve of you have to have to become justice. Which is funny because earlier James Mason tells her, like, you know, don't do, you don't have to do your best. You know, I tried to do my right. best. tell the story. I have to do my best. I tried to do well, not my best. But um, you know that that's a great thing you said too about. Uh, about the, the moment where she runs out of the courtroom because that's right out of a melodrama, like the surprise witness. And, and there's just enough of that stuff, like turning the one into a nine. There's just enough of that Agatha Christie witness for the prosecution stuff that you're like kind of shocked and drawn into the, to the court story. But you're, you only care so much because you're so, you're so on Frankie's side. Absolutely. Well, and to me, the film draws people in but obviously the the case draws people in meaning it's right. it so to me this would not be a believable case the movie wouldn't work as well if i were not drawn in and then the jury comes back and you know you're supposed to forget everything you heard and then the jury right. comes back and says you know are we limited in the amount of the award <laughs> right. that does that doesn't work so it it seems to me a huge artistic risk because that scene has to work on me as a viewer me as a jury member really yes for me to buy what happens with the actual jury in the film because when you watch any movie, you're essentially in the jury box, right? You're, you're there, you're gonna pass judgment. Like, is this, does this show me something about the human condition? Even, even if you're watching something silly, right? Um, does this show me something about people? Do I watch any of this and say, that's what life is like, or, or at least that's really interesting, right? And so, you know, it's great that like, you know, there, there's no hung jury on the verdict. Also, is James Mason not the perfect villain? He's great. He's great. Start to With finish. He's scarier, than, he's scarier than Darth Vader in this, <laughs> in this movie. And he has the same kind of scenes. You know, his, his big entry scene when, when he's uh, walking around the table and he's having all the law students give the, give the research and he's lecturing. It's perfect. I, I forget who said it, but they said, you know, the scariest villains are the ones that make sense. And to me, James Mason is, is such a perfect villain because every single thing that he says is compelling and makes sense. Yeah. And yet you, you know that he's totally deranged. Yeah, come to the dark side, Luke. <laughs> I am your father. All right, I'll see you in part three. Okay. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. 
So welcome back. In part three, we like to talk about the last scene or the title or any other kind of lingering things we, we wanted to get out in the first two segments. Mike, you have anything about the end of the title or any other thoughts? I think that this is, we, we said that there were certain scenes that were textbook in the beginning. And I guess my, my takeaway from this film is if somebody said, I want to, I want to know how to make a movie, I would tell them to, to do yeah. what I did and just watch the verdict 20 times and learn about decision-making because there are some weird, I would quote unquote weird decisions. There are some decisions that draw a bit of attention to themselves, uh, but they serve to make the movie perfect. One of them is, as you said, the, the conversation it, um, what, between the screen. that in, in the street from that elevated perspective, right? Essentially making, why is Frank such a diminutive little character yeah. um, during that scene, as you said, where most other people would decide to make him a huge character and do dominate. Um, there are other decisions, for example, that that brilliant intro of just coming up from the credits and hearing the pinballs and hearing the pinballs and hearing the pinballs and then seeing him silhouetted next next to the window. Right. Um, you know, have him have him stumble around. Characters are related to one another in ways that you just that you find out over time. You don't know how Frankie is related to this guy who stumbles into his office, but then you find out. Uh, it's never it's not like he we open the movie and frankie goes yeah i've been working on this case for three months right and, yeah. you know he he says like they're gonna be here today have you been working on it yeah he, has, he hasn't been working on it at, at all and so i think i love this movie so much again for the reason that we stated in in part one which is that it operates so beautifully you don't have to notice anything about the way that the film operates in order to get it and to be drawn in and yet if you really wanted to know how to make a film that was compelling from beginning to end, you could study this and start to pick up some of the decisions and adapt any other material according to the rules that you had learned. Totally. It's like Shakespeare, right? You don't have to know anything about blank verse or about tragedy or anything else to appreciate what goes on in Hamlet. But the more you study Hamlet, the better it gets, right? The more you start to see these subtleties. Like for example, um, something that struck me today was, you know, there's a the great bit where uh, he has a scam going where he pays off the funeral directors to go and make believe he's a mourner, right? Which is brilliant. Just that's a great way to show how down and out he is and how unethically is, right? But of course, if you push that a little, what does it show you? It shows you like Frankie's living among the dead. You know, he's like, he's like a member of the undead. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. He has, he has no clients. So he's, a, he's, a, he's literally and figuratively dead. He's morally dead. That's what I mean about the movie. The more you push it, the more it reveals its richness to you. And also uh, there's, there's a lot of, as you said, there's melodramatic moments, obviously, but there's a lot of great understated acting in this film that we haven't talked about. Oh, sure. I think the guy that, the guy that plays Dr. Gruber when he gets in his car and he yeah. says, why are you doing this to do the right thing? Why are you doing it? <laughs> and you know the the guy in that the guy in that scene you know the second time he tries to slip the card and he says you never knew my father right get out of here yeah and you know you can you can see the rage in that in that guy's face that doesn't make it into the delivery the voice is disconnected from the pain yeah. on his face I don't know who that guy is as an actor but it's a it's a brilliant you know, yeah. 10 second performance. Well, there are no small parts. They always say, Mike, there are no small parts, only small actors. <laughs> so my, my thing about the end, I want to tell you was, was that, um, and I don't think we ever did talk about this was that when he has dinner with her in the bar early on, and he's talking about like why he's a, why he's a lawyer and he's trying to impress her and things like that. And he says, you know, these people think, uh, the game is rigged. You can't fight city hall, but you put those people in a jury box and they start to change the way they think. <clears throat> That's true. Have you ever been on a jury? I have not. So I was on a federal case once for a month and it was about industrial espionage 
and it was really, really intense. I mean, it wasn't all like, it, it wasn't all like watching Paul Newman. There were the whole days where they would just read his depositions, but we had to decide whether or not these, these scientists committed industrial espionage and stole the formula for a vaccine. And um, I eventually got elected to be foreman of the jury. And I was the guy that had to stand up in the jury box and say that we did not find the scientists to be guilty of industrial espionage. And I will never forget that moment when I said it, um, the scientists and their lawyers, they put their faces in their hands. The lawyers started, started crying. It was a really, really powerful thing. So when Paul Newman gives that speech, it's great because he's kind of like, he's trying to schmooze her and, you know, and, uh, and win her over. But also it's, he, he does believe that. Like when he's like, he really does believe all that stuff. He forgot it for a while. And he was, he was made a cynical drunk because of what happened with his ex-wife's father's firm and all that stuff. But I think that's, that was really powerful. And that's why I think going back to the title, I mean, the, the title is also about, it's the verdict on him. That when he's giving that speech to them at the end, like you have to act as if you had faith. That's kind of like his, he's talking to himself, right? Yeah, I think so. And well, let me ask you quickly what you make of the very end. So the final scene oh. is, you know, she's, she's calling Frankie. Oh, he's, yeah. in, he's in, he's in a room, he's got the phone on his lap and he's just not, not answering it. Yeah. And she's, be, she's become the drunk and yeah. she's on the phone and it's ringing for him and he won't pick up. What do you make of that? And he's drinking coffee. And we, we talked before, we, in our Sea of Love podcast, we, had hit, we talked about the, uh, the reformed drunk at the end of the movie. But um, uh, I, I take it that that's his moral victory, is that for a moment, though, he does go to pick up the phone, and then he thinks better of it and sits back. And I think that that's sitting back. It's, it's like when, um, <laughs> it's like when uh, Ishmael says Ahab put his foot over the, the edge of the triworks and was able to pull himself back, and some people can't pull themselves. I think that he, that's a moral moment where he does not pick up that phone. What do you think? I think, I mean, of course, formally, uh, what I'm struck by kind of the rhyme of the phone to the pinball yeah. in the, in yeah. the beginning, yeah. beginning to end. Um, I think it's just a refusal to sink back into, yeah. into previous, previous life. Um, and I just love this movie. The verdict on himself is I think that he, he is a better man at the end of this thing than he was in the beginning. And I think he's a, I think it's the solidification of the of that transformation in him that starts when he tries to take the pictures of her. Yeah, because he comes yeah. he comes in just to do a very simple thing, just to take a bunch of Polaroids to throw in the in the jury's face. But what? But the person who ends up looking at them is him. And I think yeah. that, that that the reflexivity of the verdict is is captured in that moment. Yeah, well said. Well said. All right. Well, this was a great one. My great pick. I hope all of our picks are this good. Thanks. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.